Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, OnScript listeners. Welcome back for another tantalizing episode of the OnScript podcast featuring new and noteworthy publications in biblical studies. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Westminster Theological Center in the UK, where I am based, and I co-host the podcast with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, and Chris Tilling. Before we kick it off, I want to quickly say two things. First of all, thanks again to Ed Hatke for all his help producing these episodes uh, every two weeks. Ed has been super helpful, and we couldn't do this without you, Ed. Thank you. Also, thanks to Tommy Mullman for all his help with marketing and OnScript evangelism. If you have enjoyed OnScript, could you please turn to the person next to you at work and let them know about us? Or if you're at home, let your family know about us. Help spread the word, perhaps by wearing one of those sandwich boards, and if you do, send a pic, by the way. Uh, or flying a plane with one of those signs behind it, or maybe um, planting bushes in the shape of the words on script. We appreciate your help and support with that. Enjoy this one with Joshua Berman, interviewed by Drew Johnson. Here we go. Welcome OnScript superfans. Uh, this is Drew Johnson coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, where I'm doing a visiting fellowship at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I'm joined today all the way from Israel by the rabbi, Dr. Joshua Berman. Dr. Berman is an associate professor at Bar-Ilan University in Israel. His books include Created Equal, How the Bible Broke with Ancient Political Thought in the Temple by Oxford University Press, and the book we're going to be discussing today, Inconsistency in the Torah, Ancient Literary Convention, and the Limits of Source Criticism. Dr. Berman is an ordained Orthodox rabbi, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. He received his Bachelor of Arts in Religion from Princeton University in the United States and PhD in Bible from Bar-Ilan University in Israel, where he now teaches. Welcome to OnScript, Dr. Berman. Oh, thank you, Drew, and blessings to all of our audience from the Holy Land. Well, uh, first and foremost, I want to note to our audience uh, something they can't see, but if you can imagine with me, there's lots of kinds of hardback books that are made in the world, but I noticed this one is actually made in the United States. It was the first thing I noticed about the book, that this book is very well made, like physically. Um, And so I wondered if you negotiated that in advance, or that just happens to be what Oxford did for you. Oh my gosh, Um, that's so interesting, because... uh... Um, I think that most of the work on the book was done on the eastern coast of India. Uh, that's certainly all, all the production people that I dealt with were, it's all outsourced. Um, so it's interesting how they, I, that's different than my previous work with Oxford, where everything was done in uh, in their North Carolina operation. But uh, now I guess they parcel it out. They have editorial offices in New York and uh, right. do most of the production in India and then binding itself. I, I didn't even know that. Gee, I've learned about my book from you already, Drew, things that I didn't know. It, uh, it looks like it was made to last, which I think is a good sign. Um, so as I was reading this book, um, 
it, it became clear to me that this, it felt like a project that had been boiling for years and stewing. So I wonder uh, how this particular book project came about and uh, how long had this book been in the making in your mind at least? Wow. Uh, yes, boiling and stewing is, is correct. And I would say uh, about eight or nine years in the making. Um, look, it starts, it's really something that's very existential for me and maybe also for, for many of, uh, of, uh, of our listening audience. And that is that you know, when, when you, you're, you're given certain truths that you study in piety when you're younger, if you come from religious orientation, as I do, and then you come up against critical thought and critical conclusions uh, when you get to university, uh, and then you have to build that bridge. Uh, and that requires, for many of us, kind of theological calisthenics, philosophical calisthenics, and that's all important. And what flex room there might be within our various catechisms, all that's really important, and I've gone through that too. But there's a missing part of building the bridge, and that is turning a critical eye on the criticism itself. That is the foundational, I would say, zeitgeist of my work here. And... Uh... Well, maybe we'll come back to that, that turning the critical eye on the criticism itself, because uh, that is uh, central to what the book is doing. Um, how would you say that you're Orthodox? Uh, so it's one thing to be Orthodox uh, Jew. It's another thing to be Orthodox Jew in the land of Israel. Uh, and you're American by birth. Is that correct? It's true. Okay. So I wonder if you have any sense about how your Orthodox faith um, feeds into your scholarship? Or is it something that, you know, you hear lots of people say, well, I kind of set it aside when I do my textual work. And, uh, I don't set it aside. <laughs> okay. And how do you see it informing uh, your, like specifically, maybe even the yeshiva training or something, informing the way you do uh, your biblical uh, criticism? Okay. First of all, everything that I do, I mean, I, I strive for this in my life as an Orthodox Jew, it should be in some form or fa everything that I do should be in some form or fashion, a service of the Almighty. And so therefore what I do from nine to five, and of course, as an academic, it's much past five. It's, you know, pretty much around the clock. Uh, I, I view it as a religious calling and that, that, that's where it starts. Um, uh, secondly, uh, it, it, it influences my scholarship in that uh, existentially, my entire academic life and intellectual life as an adult has been uh, 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 an effort to find the ways to build these bridges, how I can have both spiritual integrity and intellectual integrity coming together. Uh, and I would say that what comes out in this book is that sometimes uh, I feel that I look in places maybe where others have not looked before. Uh, and so I think that, the, and I, I will tell you that the work that I find gets the greatest praise from individuals in the guild of biblical scholars who do not share my faith orientation is precisely these, these issues where I've perhaps, un, you know, looked under some stones here or there that people hadn't had thought to look under before. And oftentimes my motivation is, well, you know, my, my orthodox orientation says that there's cohesion or cohesiveness in this text. How can we find that? It's so clear to our modern eyes that it's not cohesive. Well, from a different angle, ancient, you know, from ancient Near Eastern ways of thinking or writing. Uh, and it often it's that angle looking for, well, is there another way to see cohesion here where when our modern perspectives don't allow that cohesion to be seen? And that's driven by my desire to find this type of bridge. That's what's led me sometimes to some of these insights. 
Yeah, and I think you did a wonderful job in the book uh, kind of exploring the, the modern mindset, and we'll talk about that more when we get to legal code, uh, but that, that there, is a, there is an etymology, as it were, as to why we think about these things the way we do, and it's, and it's fairly recent, which itself deserves a, a critical lens, um, just, just the, the, the novelness of, of the way we think about these things. So I think... You know, just oh, just ahead, let, me, let me say, Drew, that uh, uh, you know, the, the flip side of it, obviously, is that uh, anybody who comes with uh, 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 a kind of a religious orientation, certain set of truths that they might have been taught when they're, when they're younger, if they want to be involved in this pursuit, the academic pursuit, according to academic rules, then they also have to police themselves. They have to know what are the rules of the game, etc. So, you know, that's, that's, it's obviously not just as simple as coming with a big truck of all my orthodox belief and dump, because that wouldn't be accepted in scholarship. And it wouldn't be acceptable to me as well. There are just truths out there. You know, you, 600,000 males of, tw- of, of fighting age coming out of Egypt, a modern person has to deal with that. Every Orthodox person, I think, has to deal with that. So it's, right. you know, yeah. Okay. Well, and I, I think it's good because I know we have a lot of grad students who listen to this podcast. Um, and uh, sometimes they, you know, they'll ask, well, how did you get to the point where you could say these things so boldly? And I, I think it's worth saying that you, you do have to put your time and your work in to the point where you can uh, earn the right to be heard. And when you speak, you can say the things that you feel uh, that you've uh, that you've criticized well enough. Um, okay, well, getting to the premise of the book then, I think the chief premise, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is basically biblical scholars haven't ever really done comparative literary work with between the Hebrew Bible and, and the ancient Near East. Well, that, that's a bit, that's a, no, there's been much comparative work, but well, I would Okay, so, yeah, I, well, and I... So, so they're not doing the right kind of comparative work among the. So I, I know most of our listeners will hear, well, comparative b- biblical work with the ancient Near East. Of course, you know we have a parallelomania. You know, it went off the hook for a while, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so what's the kind of literary comparative work that you're actually uh, that you wish we we saw more of? Yeah. Well, what what I've what I've really tried to do in this work is to is to examine the notion of cohesion or its flip side, Fisher. Uh, where we have, by virtue of the fact that we are modern uh, uh, Aristotelians, all of us, doesn't matter whether you're in Israel or America or Orthodox Jew or Evangelical, we're all Aristotelians. And and it's Aristotle that has seeped down into all of us uh, uh, in our conceptions as to what cohesion, what cohesiveness means, how a piece of literature holds together. Uh, and And m- what I've tried to do is to say, or is to see how sometimes we are uh, stuck in the fishbowl of our own first assumptions. And is it necessarily true that ancient writers, especially in the ancient Near East and in ancient Israel, were they also Aristotelians? Or can we find uh, uh, compositions written in the ancient world where we see that the things that we take for granted as surefire signs of Fisher weren't so to them? And they turn up all in, in many, many surprising places. Yeah, so one of those you cite out of the gates is uh, the Kadesh uh, Stellas, which I forget which pharaoh uh, is the one who erected those. Ramses II. Ramses II, yeah. How could I forget that one? And it's in, you, you say, and this is actually, you know, sometimes the facts are the most shocking things, that it's probably one of the most well-known documents in the ancient Near East, uh, given its promulgation and that it was recreated and put along the coast um, of Canaan as well. Um, so how, how does that, uh, serve as an example to your point that you have, 
signs of fissure, signs of uh, cohesion. And you're saying uh, that that actually from an Egyptian uh, Stella writing campaign, because it wasn't just a Stella they were making, it was actually multiple accounts. Uh, but within that Stella, right, you uh, you might see signs of what we would classically call fissure, but you say, no, cohesion is fine for them. So how does that example work? Yeah, let me let me just give a little bit of background for perhaps uh, listeners that aren't familiar with this. So Ramses II, Ramses the Great, he rules for about 80 years in the, uh, the 13th century BCE. He is the greatest pharaoh of the greatest period of, of ancient Egyptian history in the New Kingdom. And his greatest accomplishment was a battle that he had against his arch rival, uh, the Hittite Empire in 1274 BCE at uh, a place called Kadesh, which is on the uh, uh, Lebanese-Syrian border at the Orontes River. Scholars think that this was the largest chariot battle in all of history, based on the descriptions from, from both sides. Uh, who won? Well, it depends who you ask. The Hittites seem to think that they got out of it okay. The Egyptians think that they won. I'm not interested in hearing what actually happened. What I'm interested in is what does Ramses do when he gets home to Egypt? And what he does is that he, he plasters Egypt. We know of at least 10 different copies all over Egypt that he put up accounts of this battle. That makes the Battle of Kadesh the most publicized event of any period in, the ancient, in ancient, ancient history, in, including in Greece and Rome. These 10 copies all over, all over Egypt. Uh, some are in monumental structures. Some are in papyri that we have found uh, in rather mundane sites, like amongst uh, working people, you know, people who would like do this, the masonry at, uh, 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 at Thebes. Um, now, here's the, what's really remarkable about the, he, there, there, he puts up in, I think, seven or eight different places that we know about um, multiple accounts of what happened. Usually three. There's a longer account, often called the poem, shorter account that we would identify in our terms more as prose, and then reliefs, you know, like comics come almost with little inscriptions under them. And when you look at these three, when you look at these three uh, uh, accounts, they don't line up. There's just, they, they contradict one another. It's very hard to mesh them. And they have seem to have different emphases and they celebrate different, as not just different different moments in the battle. Who's the real hero? Is the real hero the god? Is the real hero the king? Is the real hero the Na'arin brigade that seems to have excelled in what they did? And what comes out is that if you just had, you would never think that all three of these could have been written at one time by one king or commissioned by, by, by one king. But we know by virtue of the fact that they are at a monumental site, you know, you can't just suddenly add blank wall. You know, you build a huge wall and you start, you figure out, what am I going to put here? What am I going to put here? So it's clear that all of these are commissioned at one time together and they are composed together in spite of all the seeming fissures between them. And then the longest of them, the poem, has what we would identify as fissures within it itself. Yeah, and it, so if that were just a papyrus that was found, um, it, would it be more controversial? I mean, it's the fact that we have actual physical material, stone form, where it's not debatable that, that, that these were written at the That's same right. time. Okay. That's right. That's right. There is absolute unanimity across all Egyptologists that all of these were inscribed at the same time. Some say it was a few years after the war. Some say it was 20 years after it, but that's immaterial. What is important for us is that they are all composed simultaneously. 
So th- this just dredges up the issue of uh, looking for fissures might be a, a false hunt, or there's no way to guarantee that it's not a false fishing, hunt. Fishing for fissures. <laughs> fishing for fissures. No, it's inevitable. You know, I mean, there, I mean, there are fissures, you know, I mean, but, but what I'm saying is we might not have the keys to the car to do the work that we want to do, you know, to reconstruct the textual history of the biblical text requires that we have all of the keys. In other words, if you can identify a few fissures here and there accurately, but you're missing the keys, you're thinking that there's fissure where there isn't in just a few places, that really throws a monkey wrench into the whole thing. Yeah, so it's not the idea that there are various sources that are sometimes being uh, uh, threaded together in the, uh, the Torah that's being questioned. It's how accurately you can assess those sources. I don't think anybody argues about editorial remarks in the Torah or that uh, various stories are told from different perspectives. Well, that's part of what I'm trying to say is that when stories are told from different, from different perspectives, that is not necessarily an indication of either multiple authorship or even a desire by one side to delegitimize the previous telling. In fact, what, what, this is what Egyptologists say about the Kaddish inscriptions. Forget about what Berman says about them. What Egyptologists say, uh, Gardner, the, the, the famous Egyptologist, he said, well, it must be that what we have here is that there's, there's multiple tellings of what happened at the Battle of Kaddish to tell us different aspects about it. And sometimes that results in facts that don't fit together. And you can clearly see there's three accounts. One account praises is focused on the role of the god Amun in the salvation of Kaddish. One of the accounts is focused on the, the exploits of Ramses II. And the third composition is focused on the exploits of this particular brigade that excelled in the, in the, in the field of battle. And there's no, there seems to be no compuncture whatsoever about, well, but the details don't line up. And, and, and this, this contradicts, no, because each one is its own telling. And each one has its own message, and each one is 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 adopted on its own on its own for its own own message. Yeah, and in that case, it's 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 at least pure description. And there's the question of: Is it also being prescriptive? Is it trying to do something towards particular audiences in each telling? And that that may be off limits for us to figure out. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I, I think Egyptologists are still trying to figure this out, not just about the Kaddish inscriptions, but really just about monumental inscriptions generally. Are these for the gods? Are these for the the, uh, the the intellectual elite. When you have reliefs, are those for the common people? Or, this is a big question that, that's certainly beyond my. Yeah, and I think so. I think um, we're really talking about. It's funny because I feel like a lot of um, if I were to go in an evangelical church and ask people, like, well, how do you explain the difference between the, this Deuteronomic telling of the story of the Sinai and uh, and the Exodus telling? I, I think they would give a very similar answer, like. Well, you know, it's different audience. They're trying to do something differently with it. I think that would probably boil down to where people would end up going, yeah, they're different, but they're emphasizing different things for different purposes. Uh, so in some ways, it seems like a very common sense explanation. Um, once, you, once you accept the fact that there, there's some unanimity or cohesion, as you've been saying to the text. Um, okay, so let's turn to legal text for a second. Um, and you make the case that basically, again, the approach you bring to the text kind of determines the outcome. All data is theory-laden, as they say. Um, and you make the case that basically we're bringing tort law statutory concepts to these biblical uh, legal texts, and especially where laws seem to overwrite each other or contradict each other. 
and you make the case that it should be viewed as common law. So can you just very briefly give us a thumbnail sketch of the difference between statutory and common law? Okay, let's think about the following sentences that we use all the time that employ this simple three-letter word law, okay, uh, to pass a law. Uh, this was done according to the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. Um, uh, when we speak in those terms, we all have in mind implicitly, even without thinking, it's just obvious to us that the law that we're speaking of when we speak of, oh, the legislature passed a law. You, what you did is according to the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law, that the law is contained in a written formulation, in a law code. We all have law codes. Everything we do in our civic life is according to law codes. Um, that understanding of law, that it must be something that's very carefully written, you know, and jurists poured over it, and the likes of you and me, Drew, you know, we would never want to have to interpret law by ourselves. We get a lawyer anytime we have anything, you know, buy a house, whatever it is, because who knows? It's, just, it's, it's not natural language. It's this specialized language. Okay, that whole way of viewing law as carefully formulated prescriptions, laid out one section carefully after another, this is what we call statutory law. And it's very, very uh, intuitive to all of us because anybody who's listening to this pod podcast lives in a world that is ruled by such a notion of law. But it has absolutely nothing to do with how people thought about norms, right and wrong, what is permitted, what is prohibited in the ancient world. There is no word for law in this sense anywhere in the ancient world. I mean, in Greece, starting in the fifth century, but certainly in the ancient Near East, none of these cultures have that. Um, the way, so what was everything lawless? Were people just doing whatever they wanted to do? No, what went on in the ancient world is that right and wrong uh, was something that was very natural. Think of what goes on in your own home, okay? You have a home, you have children in your home. Is there right and wrong? Of course, all the time we're lecturing our kids about right and wrong, okay? But nobody has on the side of their refrigerator the laws of the living room, the laws of the couch. Section one, thou shalt not jump up and down on the couch. Thou shalt not eat on the couch. Or if you want to drink on the couch, then you have to consult a competent authority. We don't have that. It's not posted on, on, on the fridge. It's lived. It's modeled. Mommy and daddy do it. The neighbors do it. This is how children learn right and wrong. This is how communities in the ancient times knew what was right and wrong. Everybody's doing it. Everyone's on the same page. And so this idea that you had to write down law was entirely foreign. Now, why, what, what was it that precipitated this massive mind switch such that today, you and me and everybody listening to this podcast thinks about law as written? So I talk about that in the book, and if you want, we can talk about that too. But, but it means that when we see things that look like a law code, they sound like a law code, here, the law of duck doesn't work. It might look like a duck. It quacks like a duck. It's not a duck. It looks like a law code. It reads like a law code. It gives punishments like a law code. It's not a law code. This is what scholars have concluded, certainly about the misnomer code of Hammurabi, which is now called the laws of Hammurabi, but that doesn't really solve anything much either. This is all a perfect example of how we take a modern notion, which is so intuitive to us that we can't imagine that anyone ever, ever had thought otherwise and impose it on the ancients and thereby wind up misunderstanding a heck of a lot of things. 
Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, the code or the law of Hammurabi is a great example because I think almost everybody knows about it. I mean, there's a there's a relief of Hammurabi in the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and, and yet, as my Assyriologist friends like to point out, and I think you point out in the book as well, you know, there's not a single legal decision that ever cites or alludes uh, to the, the, the code of Hammurabi. Um, so it's just used in a different, the, the laws are used in a different way. It seems that uh, the common law argument is that it's used in a historical way, precedents are set, uh, which which means you have to uh, recite some of the laws and how they've changed over time as well uh, to show the precedence. And that's, you use this, uh, I thought it was a really good example. It's so simple, it's obvious, but uh, you use the U.S. Constitution as a model for uh, how this legal thinking might have happened. Uh, so and, and I did a little legal theory philosophy class, and I was looking at legal, uh, the, the statutes of murder in the state of Missouri, where I was at at the time, just for a, a paper I was working on. And uh, I had not realized at the time the simple fact that when they when they change what counts as murder, they don't keep the old law in there. You you just see the new iteration in in the in the legal code. So you you don't realize that uh, all all kinds of different definitions of murder preceded this in the state of Missouri. So um, how does the U.S. Constitution compare to what you think is going on in the Torah and other places as well? Okay, okay. Let me let me give some some concrete examples from within the Torah, and then we'll see how understanding uh, 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 constitutional law really is very very uh, uh, edifying here. Um, so uh, in Exodus twelve, you get, were given uh, one set of instructions about how to offer the Paschal sacrifice. Uh, and then you come to Deuteronomy 16, and it gives a totally different set of instructions about how to go about offering the Paschal sacrifice. They can't both, you can't do both. And this is fire versus boiling, or roasting versus uh, boiling. Fire versus boiling, and a whole bunch of other things have to do with sprinkling the blood, and yeah, fire, fire, yeah. Whether it's roasted or boiled is, is the main one. Where it's done, is it done in your backyard, you know, at, uh, or is it done only in the central the central shrine? There's a whole, a whole bunch of, of, of differences. They're not both operative. They can't both be done. Uh, and it would appear at, at first blush that there, if you consider the Torah to be a, co- a cohesive whole, that there is a blatant contradiction about what you do with the Paschal sacrifice. Um, so you can try all sorts of elegant ways of harmonization. Oh, this word doesn't really mean this. That doesn't work. It doesn't really work. But it's still a cohesive whole. And this is, this is how we can understand how you can have different iterations of the same law uh, carried out vastly different ways, and it's not a contradiction. You look at the U.S. Constitution. Let me explain what I mean by this. All constitutions, the world over, uh, uh, the founders of those respective states always knew that over time things are going to change. And there needs to be a mechanism in place for future generations to change what it says in the Constitution. In most places, in most countries in Europe, and in almost all the states of the Union, of the United States, the procedure is very simple. When the legislature has enough votes to enact a change, the change is voted on, and then the, the Constitution is rewritten now to accord with the new change. So that at any one moment, if you were to go to your state legislature and ask to look at the Constitution, what you would be getting is what it looks like in 2018. You would not know about anything that had happened earlier. You would be given exactly what it, what is the law that we are living right now. And that makes total sense. Except that the, uh, the, the founders uh, uh, of the U.S. Constitution took a different tack. 
as we all know, the, the U.S. Constitution, when there's a change made, it's called an amendment. It's tacked on at the end. That is to say that the original Constitution, founded in, what was it, 1787 or whatever it was, that original text never changes. When there are amendments, then the amendments are tacked on. And the amendments themselves can be contradictory. So you have the beginning of prohibition, and then you have, I think, two amendments later, the end of prohibition. And the way in which uh, some scholars look at this is that it allows for the textual integrity of the original text to remain. And it also allows readers to see, because the, the, the amendments are always dated, you see what the flow is over time. You see how things are developing. If you know the dates and you know the context that's around them, then that helps you understand why this amendment was put in at this time and this amendment at this time. This is how we need to understand law in Deuteronomy over against earlier iterations of those laws. So Deuteronomy, looking at what will life be like when Israelites enter the land of, of, of Israel, well, there's going to be central worship. There's no longer going to be people doing all their altars or, or, or uh, high places in their own backyards. So we're going to reshape how the Paschal sacrifice is offered. The iteration of the law in Exodus 13 is kept on the books, not because that's necessarily the one that's operative, but because what the Torah is doing is showing you what was Israel's law as it moved throughout this whole period. It is a truth about all the laws that are in the Torah, that they are always dated. They're always situated, not just textually, but chronologically. You know, were these given at Sinai? Were these given during the wandering? Were these given in the 40th year? And that tells you so much about what it is the Torah wants to say about each law. And so you see an evolution, and this is how different iterations of the law can now be seen as part of one one whole that actually holds together. Hmm. Yeah, I thought that was a very helpful account that you gave in the book. And then the, one of the nice things about the book also is the chapters are very short often. Uh, so you, you have some good explanation and then a few short uh, test cases, which are very helpful. There's also, uh, which um, we, we don't need to get into here, but I think the discussion of uh, narrative and law, there's lots of people who've been working in how uh, narratives are displaying some of the law uh, being worked out. Um, Jonathan Burnside, I know, has done some work on that as well. Um, and I, I thought you took some interesting approach with with Ruth uh, as well, which I think is worth reading for all those who are listening. Um, I want to get back to the documentary hypothesis and that kind of general source criticism bent. Um, as you point out in the book um, that, you know, the most famous or infamous case of documentary hypothesis, the one that kind of seals the deal is the Noahic account of the flood in Genesis 6 through 9. Actually, I have a friend who, like, he points to that as the reason he finally could buy into the documentary hypothesis when someone showed him how you could pull those two uh, accounts apart. Um, so, you know, you, you make a case uh, based on chiasmus, uh, among other things, but you, you make a more basic common sense uh, appeal that there's a problem with that thinking at the outset. And, and if I have it correct is, uh, what's the problem with appealing to a parallel narrative in, the, in Mesopotamia while simultaneously appealing to multiple sources behind uh, the story of the flood? Uh, I don't catch what, say again? Yeah. Well, the, the idea is, uh, you, you know, in one sense, you want to say uh, the flood resembles these Mesopotamian accounts so closely 
And at, this, and at the same time, you want to be able to say, but there are actually two different accounts under the, the biblical account. Uh, there's two different sources uh, undergirding the... I don't, think there are two di- I don't think there are two different sources undergirding... The- okay, so what would be the problem with espousing that, I guess? Oh, I, I think that the, uh, 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 the source-critical approach to the flood story, I mean, as I point out in the book, I think it suffers from uh, no fewer than eight uh, methodological flaws. Uh, um, some of the... I mean, I... The, difficult to go through all later than now but uh yeah we don't some, need to <laughs> right 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 uh um uh some of my one i'll throw out what, what what i think is one of my one of my favorites uh and that is that we have no evidence of of uh from any other ancient near eastern texts of people bringing together uh uh sources in this way to create such a mess uh, when you read it, in other words, you have uh, the diatessaron, but that was exactly the opposite. You have you had you know the four gospels, and uh, Tatian wanted to create one seamless whole, and it's pretty seamless. But this this doesn't this doesn't achieve that. Um, now now source critics fully admit that what we do have here uh, in Genesis six to nine are not full original accounts. Uh, the priestly account, so-called priestly account, is longer, but they all admit the so-called uh, uh, non-priestly account must have been much longer. So then what we know from that, by their own admission, is that redactors did not uh, retain full fidelity to their original texts. They were ready to cut stuff out. Once you say that they were ready to cut stuff out, how do you know that they never changed anything along the way. If they don't have fidelity to the original text, maybe in final redaction, they did some things of their own. Once, and no source critic can allow that to ever be said, because once you're ready to admit that maybe a redactor, editor, whatever you want to call him, had original source material and not only cut down, but also changed some of the original language, or maybe a lot of the original language, in order to create the text before us, that shuts down the barn. That means that there's no possibility anymore for us to recreate what the original texts look like. That would put source criticism out of business. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that example, uh, and like you said, you had eight or nine methodological issues that you took up with that. I think as you walk through those, it, be- it becomes clear uh, how much trepidation you should have in working through that method. And then, and then the question becomes, well, what... What's the better method? What what are our alternatives? And at the end of the book, you you basically appeal. I mean, the book as a whole is kind of a detailed appeal for epistemological humility, uh, which I think we're all scholars claim to appeal to. That. <laughs> I don't know anybody who's, who's who's never. But but there's a further appeal here to methodological controls. Um, can, can not maybe not a null hypothesis, but can you know can you find parallel examples of uh, the literary work that's going on in the text here? So I guess, you know, just like down to brass tacks, if, uh, you know, somebody's reading this text and there, and there was a discussion uh, in your mosaic symposium, not on, exactly on the topic of the book, but it was, uh, you know, some overlay with the, what's going on in the book. Uh, best case scenario, someone who is really deep into source criticism at the, you know, really trying to give exact accounts of the, the, the history and the text of each little part of the text. They read your book. What's the best case scenario outcome that you see coming from them taking the book seriously? Oh wow! Um, 
besides a spiritual awakening and saying, I see everything firmly now or. No, that's not going to happen. I know that's not going to happen. Um, I, 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 uh, I, I commented to a colleague of mine recently that I think that a, a prerequisite for, uh, uh, promotion in academia should be that the, that the promotion board says, asks you list us the things about, about which you have changed your opinion during your scholarly career. Um, I think it's really, really important, but and I think it doesn't it doesn't happen enough. I think I think, look, you know, it's just human nature, and and Kuhn, you know, Thomas Kuhn told us, you know, people who've been trained in one way, and there's a paradigm, and uh, even when there's begin to be problems with the paradigm, until a new paradigm comes along that irons everything out, they're going to stick to where they are. So um, I would say uh, younger students, younger, yeah, people, grad students that are training that are maybe looking at all the issues with fresh eyes. I think that's important. I think it's also really, really important um, that that uh, there's a lot of people who uh, are kind of on the fence about a lot of these issues, I discover. They're not vocal because by virtue of the fact that they're on the fence means that they're they're not sure what to say, so they don't talk about this all, all, all that much. Um, so, you know, I, I don't have any uh, uh, delusions about uh, suddenly uh, converting, uh, you know, the, the whole the whole the scholarly guild just like I'm sure that I'm sort of stuck in some things some you know convictions and academic premises that I have that uh, that others would say gosh he's just irredeemably lost in his in his first assumption so but uh, yeah so I, I think younger students and I think also I what really what I what, what I'm hoping is that uh, that this work will will be uh, something that will stimulate uh, other scholars who are looking to build the bridges that I am especially between what tradition says and what criticism says. And to view that as, as a worthy endeavor, to view it as one that has opportunities for outcomes that are different than what we have today. That yes, you know, it's important to examine, you know, our catechisms and is there room, is there flexibility there? For sure, for sure, that's important. But that there's so much important work to be done out there especially by getting in touch with uh, ancient Near Eastern writings, ancient Near Eastern way of thinking about things, much more than has been done. And I would say that if there's one thing that I really wanted to appeal here on this broad platform with which you have blessed me, is to address myself to folks who are studying in seminary, who maybe already have a little bit of an affinity, they kind of, they, they, they like it, they've got that spark about studying ancient languages, and maybe they're thinking, you know, it's nice to study this, but I want to I wanna save people's souls. I want to do pastoral work. Uh, that's serving the Lord. I get that. I get that. I'm a rabbi. I also played, you know, I, I also enjoy pastoral work and, and all that. But what I want to tell seminarians who are kind of on that fence is that you don't know how much good you can do for people by engaging in this very detailed, thorough intellectual work. I mean, my inbox is full. I get a constant stream of questions, Jews and non-Jews alike. Oh, you know, how, how do I reconcile this? What do you do? Is there another way of looking at it? Um, so that, you know, you can, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can be a scholar and you can still be doing work that's, uh, that's, that's beneficial for people's, people's spiritual, spiritual well-being. Uh, and I think that, yeah, that really that this, this, this foundational idea that there's so much in, in critical method, which is really anachronistic, which is 
from where we are in ways that we just have no idea that maybe once upon a time things were different. And uncovering that is so exciting. And I really want to invite uh, as many people as, as possible to, to come join us in this very exciting, very important work. Yeah, I think it's important uh, to note that, you know, academia is such a weird, weird landscape, especially biblical studies. Um, I mean, even when I talk to my friends who do other kinds of scholarship, I think uh, it's important to note that if you do a lot of really hard work over the years uh, to make the case, sometimes the best outcome is that you continue the conversation, that you get people to stay in the conversation and, and to think more about it. It's not that you're converting people to this wonderful thing that you've seen that nobody else has or... Um, so even, you know, epistemological humility, uh, has to be had even in the aims of people who have radical research agendas. Right. Uh, so, okay. Um, I'm, I'm really interested to know, so the book's been out for about a year now, is that right? Um, and, and, uh, I'm, I'm interested to know from your perspective, how, how are you, uh, how are you taking it on the chin? Uh, how, how have been the responses and, uh, what do you think are, the most significant responses and who, that have challenged you, uh, what would you say those were? Wow. You know, a lot of, a lot of the, uh, a lot of responses, uh, come out these days on social media and they're kind of in-house discussions. So if you're part of the right Facebook group, then you, you're privy to those. And if you're not, so there's, I'm sure that there's, I'm sure that there are many, many discussions about, uh, about the book that I'm not privy to. I, I know that there have been, uh, four, reviews that i've uh, that i've come across uh uh they've all been positive um uh, you know i think people are just intrigued by you know discovering the degree to which uh there are a whole series of anachronistic uh, presuppositions that uh undergird a lot of our a lot of our uh, scholarship so you don't feel like there's uh, some scholar out there who's writing a book proposal not right now titled inconsistencies in berman you know why he's gotten it all wrong. <laughs> you know, I mean, Drew, as you as you know, okay, so right, so the book has been out now for about fifteen months. Uh, in the life of a book and its reception, that's a blink. You know, the book comes out; it's not a short book. Uh, it takes a while to read. Someone writes an intelligent assessment of it until it's published. Do you know what I mean? So it's it's hard it's hard to say. Um, uh, so we'll see. We'll see where it goes. I, you know, I, I think I, I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, yeah, let me, let me talk about not, not my own work, but what I, I suspect will happen. Okay? Um, uh, there's a very uh, prominent scholar whose work has had a very great influence on me named Gordon Wenham. He's in the UK. He's in the UK. He's an Old Testament scholar in the UK. He wrote uh, an, an article in Vedas Testamentum one of the most important uh, uh, journals in the field, uh, in, uh, in the late 70s, about the flood, in which he showed that the, that the uh, Genesis flood account follows 15 or 17 uh, uh, parallel developments of plot to uh, uh, the, the Mesopotamian flood account in the 11th tablet of the Gilgamesh epic. Really, it's one after the other, without any gaps, and it's just remarkable how little attention that article has been given by source critics. What I mean to say by all this is that people work within their own first assumptions. So if you want to talk about how to spice up Genesis 6 to 9, then 
that gets read by all the people who do that. If you want to claim using academic critical methodology that, whoa, there seems to be a cohesiveness here and we can control for that by what we see in the Mesopotamian flood epic, well, then those that are looking to splice the text usually don't even cite it, uh, let alone engage with its claims. So I'm sure that for, for some, my book, you know, well, we just don't do what Berman does. So we, we do other things. Just like probably I also ignore certain things that go on out there. So right. we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll know that, it, that, that, that the book is doing well when it begins to have serious critics. That's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Okay. Well, at the end here, we're going to do the speed round all in one shot. So I have uh, quite a few questions here for you that you're meant to answer um, very quickly if you can. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you more time where you need to on a few of them. But are you ready for the speed round? Here we go. Yes. All right. Shoot. In, in just a few sentences, how does one become a rabbi? Wow. Uh, how does one become a rabbi? Uh, one studies uh, a certain uh, uh, set of texts and usually gets uh, um, uh, uh, tested on a certain amount of material. There's a kind of a standard curriculum. And when you pass those tests by an agency or by a rabbi that's recognized, then you become a rabbi. I'm talking here about Orthodox ordination, which is, right, which right, is what of I course. Okay. Yeah. 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 And that set of texts is going to be the Talmud, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And the Mishnah. So, yeah. Though I drew, I just have to share a, a, an anecdote. I think this will really compliment. Uh, we at Bar Ilan were blessed to have now a large contingent of South Korean graduate students who come to us to study, to really learn uh, modern Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, and biblical studies. And I was speaking with one of them recently, and he said, he asked me exactly that question. He says, oh, you're a rabbi, and how, you know, how do you become a rabbi? And I explained to him the, the courses of study and the tests, and then he said to me, I want to be a rabbi. So, you know, maybe we'll have our first South Korean evangelical rabbi. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, 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 it's, a, it's a testament to, 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 a testimony to, their, to their appreciation of wisdom and mentorship. And that's, uh, yeah, it is slightly different than a lot of the Protestants and, well, and Roman Catholic ways of, of becoming ordained. I mean, there's similarities and there's definite difference. One, one main difference is, I think, uh, the idea in orthodoxy, you, you kind of become ordained under, under a, another rabbi. Rather, rather than kind of a denomination. Or... Yeah. In fact, the word for ordination in Hebrew, smicha, putting hands on top. Yeah. It's taken yeah. from the Bible. From Samach. That's yeah. right. That's right. In other words, just like a person would, would uh, put their hands on the animal's head, sort of transfer their identity to the animal that was going to be sacrificed. So one mentor or rabbi confers his status onto the... Uh, the, the underlings. Just like uh, Numbers the, 27 with Moses and Joshua, right? Yes, exactly. Correct. Um, okay. Uh, second question. Do you know Krav Maga? Wow. I do not. Um, uh, I, I have served in the IDF, um, uh, the Israel Defense Force, but my service was a little different than, uh, than what you might read about in, you know, exciting books about the Mossad, because uh, I made Aliyah at the age of 23, and then I got married and had a baby. By the time they got around to me, I was 29, and I did a very shortened service. So I never really – I got around to driving a Jeep. That's what they had me doing. But none of the Krav Maga stuff. Uh, what, they're, they're standing around like, what are we going to do with Berman? Uh, give him the keys to the Jeep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's basically my military service as well. Um, uh, this is going to be a Talmudic question since you're a rabbi. I have to ask you at least one opinion. Um, 
and uh, we'll see if we get three answers. Do you agree or disagree with uh, Rev Eliezer uh, on his assessment that Adam had sex with all the animals in order to figure out that Eve was his proper mate? Look, I mean, like all Midrash, I take Midrash uh, uh, as, as uh, uh, looking, as exhortative, as looking to, to convey ideas, not as uh, literal uh, historical accounts. Okay. Oh, wow. So we got a, an answer and an interpretive key here. All right, good. Um, have you ever met a European or an American Christian who has like a dysfunctional obsession with Israel and all things Jewish? What do you mean by dysfunctional? I mean, like, they're obsessed in a way that might border on unhealthy. Uh, I mean, I have been blessed to meet many, many people that love the Jewish people and, uh, and love the state of Israel. Uh, and what I have found is that the farther I travel from Israel, the more that is true. So that when I, I, I traveled to Fiji a few years ago, uh, it's a great, being a Bible scholar is a great thing, and I'll tell you why. It's because uh, your institution often will pay for you to speak in any academic setting where your discipline is taught. It just turns out that there are more Bible colleges on the face of the earth than any other academic discipline. So if you're into diving like I am, then you can go to a place like Fiji and I could spend Shabbat with Seventh-day Adventists and have a beautiful Shabbat experience with not a Jew in sight for 1,700 miles. And then the next day, go diving. So this combination of spreading the word of the Lord and diving to the depths of the sea, I call my Jonah project because it kind of meshes it all together. And what I discover is that, you know, people that have never seen a Jew before, you arrive in Fiji and you're Jewish and you're from the Holy Land. Boy, I mean, I really had to remind myself, uh, you know, that uh, a few a few pills of humility was was definitely in in in, in the well that pairs way. nicely with this next question is uh, uh, for for those that don't I, I just I just have to add one thing about that yeah go ahead about the, so uh, as as uh, as I was receiving this incredible reception in Fiji um, uh, I thought to myself you know a man is never a prophet in his own city I thought I thought that line and I thought to myself you know where's that from where's that from because it's it's thrown around in Hebrew all the time. Wait, Drew, you got to hear this. It's I know, I know Hebrew. exactly where it's, it's from. thrown around in Hebrew all the time. And I said, "You see, Berman, you see, Berman, you say to yourself, in Navibi Iro, there's no there's no man who's a prophet in his own city, which is clearly from the Bible, and you can't even remember which prophet of Israel said that." The next morning, the next morning there, as I'm spending Sabbath with the Seventh Day Adventists on the largest island in Fiji. Uh, I decided to attend the Bible study session that they had there. And they opened their New Testaments, which I don't get to read very often. And I see there, Jesus says, there's no man who's a prophet in his own city. Says, oh, that's where it's from. I didn't know that. <laughs> so I got the dose of humility that I, that I was really uh, needed. If it, if it makes you feel any better, I play a game in my class, my introduction to Hebrew scripture, where I, I say, who said this, right? And I'll say, love your neighbor as yourself. And and, and, and everybody's always guessing Jesus or Paul. And I'm like, nope, Moses. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Nope, no Moses. Uh -huh. And <laughs> so, in Leviticus, no yeah, less. Yes, yes exactly. Leviticus uh, 19, one of the best chapters, yeah. Okay. Um, so for those who don't know anything about Israel, uh, could you just briefly describe the average Israeli's relationship to the practice of the Torah? The average Israeli. Wow. 
were, were spread all over all over the uh, uh, whole spectrum. It's a whole spectrum. Um, uh, Twenty percent of uh, of Israeli Jews are observant. That means like Sabbath observant, you know, and kosher observant. Uh, what you would think of when you think of an, as an observant Jew. Um, uh, there's a huge gray gray area in the middle of, of people who do a little bit, but uh, uh, and then there's there are some that are secular that do nothing. Uh, uh, but I would say that over time, what's happening is that once upon a time there was a really staunch secular anti-religious. We're we're here to, to to uproot all that came before and create the new secular kibbutz Jew. That's kind of gone by the wayside together with the kibbutz. Uh, and there's a kind of return today to try to re-engage tradition uh, that's really very fascinating. And, you know, there's some things that are kind of universal. The idea of sitting down with the family at Friday night dinner is in almost every Israeli household. Uh, so that there are certain things from the tradition that seep down really deep into all sectors of the society. Hmm. Okay. Yom, Yom, uh... Kippur, Yom, Yom Kippur, which is tomorrow night. Uh, well, by the time this is aired, it'll be past that. But um, Yom Kippur, you can go out onto the, the largest superhighways that we have, and there is nothing, nothing, hmm. not a car. Um, the, uh, do you watch Fauda? I don't. What is that? Oh, it's an Israeli television show. It's huge over here in the United States. It's on Netflix. We don't have, we don't have a, a TV. Oh, so it's well, it's on Netflix only. But uh, well, then I'm not going to ask you the next question if Leah Raz is svelte in person. Um, okay, if modern biblical criticism were a movie, what would be the title? <laughs> I, have be, I have to be careful here, Drew. Uh -huh. Well, I, I, I would like to think that uh, the parts that I critique in my in my book uh, would be called the Towering Inferno. Oh, I remember that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen a lot of movies since my childhood, so that's my yeah. touchstone. But we'll see. You know. I very vividly remember that movie from my childhood. Um, okay, controversial question. Do you share Jesus' name, or do you think it was actually Yeshua? So do you think Jesus, is, Jesus was actually called Yehoshua or Yeshua? You know, I don't know enough about uh, uh, New Testament scholarship to, to, to answer that. There is a group of people that really wanted to be Yeshua. Oh really? Yeah, uh -huh. I don't know why. Okay, let me ask you a let me ask you a harder name, and you can come back to that one. Or a harder question. Um, uh, you know, I, I'll just say my, my, my father's Hebrew name is uh, the son of Jacob, Gad, G A D, G A D, pronounced in Hebrew, God, but in Hebrew you don't say Gad, you say God, and so I've been the butt of some jokes about. Yoshua, son of God, son of God. but I, 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 I deny it. And I, I, I have, uh, unfortunately, I, I don't have any, any intelligent uh, response to whether uh, Jesus's name originally was Yeshua or Yehoshua. That's okay. I, I, I've heard of similar faux pas with names. Um, when I was living in Brazil for a little bit, there was a guy at the seminary from East Timor who was called Salvador Gideus or Jesus. And it literally means savior of Jesus. <laughs> oh, really? I, yeah, okay. I think his parents meant to say Jesus is savior, but they ended up naming him savior of Jesus. So there you go. Okay, what is the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years for you? The, the Formation of the Hebrew Bible by David Carr. Oh, that's easy. Okay, good one. 
Um, here's a question about awkwardness. When you're talking about a biblical passage with somebody and they and then you notice they start employing a Kabbalistic numerological formula to interpret uh, that passage, what do you do? Um, I listen, you know, Jewish tradition has we say that we have 70 uh, facets or faces to the Torah. There are all sorts of of uh, of lenses that people uh, 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 put on to interpret scripture for all sorts of uh, uh, pastoral purposes and and uh, 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 preaching purposes. And I accept all of them in their own context for what they're what they're designed to do. When someone wants to say to me, I'm writing for you, Professor Berman, a term paper for this academic course in this university utilizing the Kabbalah to interpret the biblical passage. I'm like, well, I don't know if that's going to pass muster in this course. Okay. Yeah, you do make a, a really nice note about numerology in the book. Uh, it's a one-off hit, hit and run. I love it. Uh, okay. Uh, last question. What idea in biblical studies do you wish would die off, go the way of the dodo bird? We ask everybody this question. Yeah, I think the belief that we can uh, actually uh, uh, fish out what prior sources looked like in clear resolution. We can see the fissures. We can maybe make some, you know, uh, very low resolution statement, but lacking actual documentary evidence that we pull up from the ground, this idea that we can take the received text and move backwards with clear resolution and, and, uh, and recreate what was before, I think that, that uh, it, it's, it's lacking, lacking good methodological basis, in my opinion. That's really what the book is about. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to join me with such a vast time zone difference and uh, staying up late with me uh, tonight. I also want to make a note to our listeners that Oxford University Press has offered OnScript listeners a 30% discount on the book for the next couple of weeks, I think. They're going to have at their site, uh, oup.com slash academic. Uh, enter the code AAFLYG6, that's Alpha Alpha Fox Lima Yankee Golf 6, at your checkout to get that 30% discount. And thank you again, Dr. Berman, for all the time. Okay, thank you, Drew. And again, uh, thanks for all of our audience for listening in, and blessings to all of you from the Holy Land. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.